This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Welcome to the patrons only Q&A. We're going to start right out with William Kaiser with the first question, especially because it's relevant to what I'm talking about on the show currently, which is the uh, Beyond Good and Evil read-through and analysis. So uh, William starts out by asking, he starts us off here, I would love to hear your analysis, your meta-analysis of Beyond Good and Evil before you even start your book analysis. In other words, where are you coming from in your meta-analysis of morality or discussion of Nietzsche's meta-morality? Okay, my meta-analysis of Beyond Good and Evil. Well, it is sort of... It depends, I guess, on what you mean by that. Um, On some level, I could say that my meta-analysis is sort of what I set out to say at the beginning of that first episode of, uh, you know, the overall, the way I interpret the meaning of the book as a whole, which is, I think, to reevaluate, to reevaluate the truth and particularly truth-seeking. There's a lot said about the truth but Nietzsche's comments, I think, it's maybe more interesting as a starting place to look at the will to truth, right? The desire to know what is true and not what is, quote-unquote, a mere appearance. And to ask where that comes from and what the value of this will is. That's the first question in Beyond Good and Evil. What is the value of this will to truth? And of course, Nietzsche would say that the will to truth is a manifestation of our will to power, And so that's where, you know, and then he evaluates the will to truth according to that interpretation, that it is a, an indirect means of expressing our will to power. And therefore we could evaluate the will to truth by that standard and ask whether or not the discovery of truth actually serves power, makes us more powerful, makes us healthier, stronger, stronger, more vibrant, more alive, more creative or whether the acquisition of truth actually undermines these things. And I think Nietzsche makes a convincing case that it does actually, in many cases, it has the potential to undermine these things. And what does that mean? It means that our illusions, our artistic, moral, religious illusions can serve the project of life and the unmasking of those illusions as being illusions can undermine our lives. That it is probably better for most people not to know the truth and that therefore the entire scientific project is called into question as on the broader scale, part of this cyclical life cycle of, uh, I mean, you could look at it from the perspective of empires and nations, but that it is with success and the attainment of our goals as regards living and thriving in the natural world that we then begin to ask what is this all about? And um, it's from the position where one has uh, even the means to begin to ask these questions, even the ability to begin to ask these questions, right? That we can begin to um, bring our values under the magnifying glass and begin to vivisect the things that drive us. When you're just in an existential struggle to survive, you, you can't inquire about electromagnetism, right? That's the, the short version of that, that question. And so, um, you know, again, it ties in with the will to power and how we're all victims of our own success and how triumph brings with it this self-undermining quality that the 
there is something very deep in the logic, the internal logic of Nietzsche's philosophy, that this eternally recurring cycle of war and peace always victory always brings about the conditions for defeat and defeat always brings about the conditions for victory and so too with strength and weakness and that insight on some almost like a symbolic or metaphorical that's maybe the wrong way to say it an archetypal level is the meaning of beyond good and evil perceiving that so too with good and evil and truth and fiction and selfishness and selflessness morality and immorality, they mutually give rise to one another. And therefore that we move beyond this dividing of the world, which is Nietzsche's project from the very beginning of um, attacking the division of the world, metaphysical and moral dualism in the sense of the true and apparent world or the world of the good versus this transitory world of suffering and impermanence or evil, depending on how you want to render it and how this idea has maintained or shape-shifted in so many different forms throughout the entire existence of humanity. And maybe my meta, to get even more meta with it, why would that be? There are a number of theories that one could put forth as to why this is, but I think Nietzsche's one idea in Nietzsche is that it's simply a consequence of being conscious beings, of being rational, sentient beings, that we would have this world of the abstract and the ideal, and that the world of the abstract and the ideal by its very nature is, as Nietzsche says, a world of the unconditioned and the self-identical and the enduring, right? The concept can be the world where the good exists, the good in the platonic sense, right? The conceptual world is where that exists. And this is why he's always attacking our structures of language because of the patterning of our thought that goes on as a result of our the grammar of our thought. And so the grammar of our thought, I mean, in some sense, it's even beyond grammar, right? The very, uh, I don't want to say notion because it's like, what a word is, right? A word concept, the very nature of a conception is something which is not subject to impermanence, transitoriness, decay, death, and all of the blurred boundaries of the real world, right? A concept is not made up of particles, in other words. You don't have to draw an arbitrary boundary or class around it. The class or category well, those things are in themselves concepts, but they exist by definition, so to speak, right? They're just sort of asserted or spoken into being. And this, you know, it's very telling then the way that God speaks the world into being with the logos. But this isn't a uniquely Christian idea. I mean, it goes back to, uh, um, you know, ideas that were in ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, um, even going back to the first creation myths in Sumeria and uh, Babylon, Babylonians' uh, creation myth as well, that there's always this element of the spoken word and uh, sort of things coming out of the mind of the deity in some sense. And uh, that's very telling, right? <laughs> so this world, this whole conscious world, our whole rational intellectual world has always been at odds with the physical world, and the natural world, and the world of the senses as we perceive it. And it is that it's from that 
experience that this divided world is created and this whole dichotomous way of therefore understanding the world because the a dichotomy is so central to our self-perception and our perception of our condition the human condition that we that dichotomous thinking then <laughs> enters into the entire structure of how our language um, approaches you know all of the deepest questions of human life and Nietzsche by showing the ways in which truth and falsehood um, mutually arise they mutually interdepend upon one another that is his way of following through the will to truth to its ultimate conclusions as a philosopher and coming to this understanding of why philosophy in some sense always gets it wrong in so many words and there's so much other elements of the work there that we'll get to as we go through this walkthrough analysis but that's my understanding of beyond good and evil and maybe another way the reason why i said it's hard to know what you mean by meta-analysis is perhaps you're asking me on the psychological level or the level of nietzsche's motivation what he's doing in beyond good and evil like the context of the work in terms of nietzsche's broader thought and why the problem of science is so huge to him I think it is, I mean, like from a biographical standpoint, it's because he looks at the ancient Greeks and has this experience that when I talked to John Hunt in the podcast, uh, he had this experience. Many of us have it where you suddenly hit with this, struck with this perception of, you know, reading about ancient Greece or ancient Rome, like, oh, all of these people had lives like my life or like the lives of the people I knew, but they existed. And we have the reason why is we have this striking experience with particularly these like the greeks and romans is because their histories are so well preserved and we have their words speaking to us about their own experiences and memories and the events of their lives and their opinions on things right and they seem like real people cicero seems like a real person right and you realize though that cicero inhabits a different world than you live in not only a world of different experiences different concerns different dangers that he has to worry about than that the modern person might have to worry about. But he also inhabits a different moral universe than we do. And there are ways in which you can see how the Greek and Roman society was a prerequisite to our own or how their ideas are continued or passed down even into our own day. But then there are other aspects that are almost totally alienating about them you realize it's like there's this whole civilization that exists before Christendom and it leads you then to look at the ways that our very thought about the world has been altered since the arising of Christendom and what millennia of that did to the human mind. And I, I guess it raises all of these questions, right? It raises all of these questions about, well, for one, the truth and perspective this is where you get the idea that perspective is the basic condition of all life because you realize there haven't been universal truths that have been known since time immemorial by everyone because all cultures you can try and look for the similarities between them but they all believe different things ultimately about reality and what is moral and that undercuts universalism or dogmatism in a very profound way so i think that 
Nietzsche is being genuine to some extent when he wants to attack dogmatism. As I mentioned at the end of that episode, though, the first episode of the walkthrough, Nietzsche has to apply his critique of philosophy to himself. And by seeing, because his project then to collapse that division that we've created between rational thought, the rational conceptual world and the physical world, is to point out how philosophy itself is actually a product of the physical world and uh, does not exist within this realm of uh, detached, dispassionate logic and you know abstract concepts totally rarefied and, and separated away from the physical reality. Like, no, philosophy is a physical, natural, physiological product, which means Nietzsche's philosophy is also a physiological product. It's driven by his own emotions and motivations and desires and his own flaws and pathologies, if they even exist. And this will be particularly important once we begin to bring in the concept of the mask and uh, Nietzsche's acknowledgement that, what would you say? Because philosophy is an instinctive and impulsive and driven activity, which he compares to, he, you know, he talks about how philosophy is similar to the activity of the mystics who are inspired, right? Um, we can put philosophy in an artistic category as well. This is part of his project in Birth of Tragedy to show how philosophy comes out of um, art. That Socrates is also a form of artist, is some somewhat of the suggestion. And if philosophy is springing from that same domain as the artist, right? Well, art, religion, morality, all of these things, they, they deceive us. And what are the ways in which the, every philosopher is attempting to deceive us in that artistic way of editing or revising reality in order to bring it in line with his own um, unconscious demands for what reality ought to be. And it's interesting, like if we take the work, if we take Nietzsche seriously then and evaluate the work from that standpoint, um, you could come to a lot of different conclusions about what it is that Nietzsche is actually doing with Beyond Good and Evil, but to put it as succinctly as I can, his agenda, for better or for worse, is to make everything questionable, both because I think he, Nietzsche thinks this is something that has become lost in philosophy, or that maybe we never really had, that people <laughs> don't actually want to doubt every last premise, because if they did that, they'd have to doubt even the premise of doubting <laughs> every last premise, right, for example, but they'd have to doubt a lot of things that they're actually morally attached to and are not willing to question. And furthermore, I think by seducing us over, by being a tempter and a tempter, right? Making the attempt to seduce us over to making anything questionable and raising those strange, wicked, questionable questions, he opens the door to re-examining viewpoints on life that may have been entirely verboten, to use the German, in the wake of Christian ascension and the psychological zeitgeist of Christianity and its effects upon the European mind, the effects of the Enlightenment, the Protestant Re Reformation. How can you go back to the ethos of the Renaissance or the ancient Greek polis? How, how, how can you do that? Or the Muslim, the, the ethos of the Muslim conquerors who ruled Spain before it was, you know, uh, unjustly ripped away from them by those who should have graveled in the dust before Islam during the, the Reconquista, 
right? How can you revisit the, that old recapture, salvage, whatever it is? And we don't have to get into that. I mean, it certainly involves a lot of, a lot of, a lot of scary things for the modern people, right? We have that moral prohibition on it. So, you know, things like aristocracy, that's the thing that everyone is probably most worried about usually politically when they read Nietzsche. But also, you know, there is something really beautiful and powerful about the Greek approach to life of really celebrating life unequivocally, right? And calling it good with the suffering of life not being a condemnation of it and the tragedy of life not being a condemnation of it and the celebration of the human body and a beautiful physique and the, you know, uh, the celebration of virtue and competition, you know, the friend as the, the, the polite enemy in some sense, right? The person who mutually sharpens one another in this competition to of self betterment or whatever it might be, that there is something really beautiful about ancient Greece that Nietzsche, that we might even be able to see as laudable and see how that's been like maybe damaged beyond repair in post Christianity. And so how do you open the door to that again? And in some sense, Nietzsche's whole career is a way, is a, trying to find some way to hack the modern mind to open the door to these ideas again. Um, so that's my, that's my meta-analysis of Beyond Good and Evil. Material mind is the next question. And material mind says, I would like to ask without being too presumptuous, what are some aspects of Nietzsche's thought you find distasteful or even false? Is there anything in Nietzsche you find that you reject outright? Or are there just some aspects which may seem dated or perhaps just disagreeable from your perspective? So when it gets into metaphysical Nietzsche, like the time atom fragment, even his criticism of causality to some extent, um, I think it actually is important that we, that we do follow Nietzsche down asking these questions about causality and make cause and effect questionable and do understand how, like all things, it is just like a, uh, what would you call it? It's just a framework for understanding the data as we have it. But it's, it's not, to take ourselves away from this certainty that the world as we perceive it, even as we discover more things about it through scientific inquiry, is somehow an objective world we're discovering, and understand that it is, we're living in a human reality. Um, and, you know, that we live inside of our nervous systems, right? And we don't ever touch reality as it is. That kind of understanding, that radical, radical, the radical acceptance of the phenomenal world as perceived by mankind and understanding that there's nothing objective or outside of humanity about it. We never touch the world outside of humanity because what, like we would have to not be there <laughs> in order to observe it, which doesn't make any sense. So um, I really am in favor of that, right? But, uh, and I think everyone should then sort of ask those questions or thought experiments. But as far as like, do I believe in causality? Like for all intents and purposes, like, yeah, for the very reason that I do accept the phenomenal world as I perceive it, right? And cause and effect does seem to be um, part of the reality that I experience. I don't know. I, I understand it's just a cognitive framework, but the the pattern to which that cognitive framework refers is something that i do experience that isn't just doesn't just seem to be subject to my interpretation of it 
So, you know, that's an example. I appreciate him raising questions about it. I appreciate the time atomism fragment being willing to entertain the notion of time as the, the quote unquote matter of the universe, right? Uh, rather than something in space to, to shift our understanding of what reality is from a spatial framework to a temporal framework. That's very fascinating to me, but it does still seem to like partake of like trying to grasp at some sort of objective world. And, um, I don't think you ever will get there with philosophy and that's what drives people crazy. It's what turns them into Jungians and shit like that is, uh, really trying to pierce behind the veil and understand the objective world simply through the operation of human reasoning. Most mystics like realize you can't do that. Right. <laughs> um, and so whatever Nietzsche kind of gets into that territory, I, I don't necessarily agree with him. Things that I find distasteful or uh, false or that I reject outright, uh, let's see here. I don't think Nietzsche was, I think he's too individualistic. And I, I've tried to point out the ways in which maybe that's, I'm struggling to find the words here because I've, I've pointed out that Nietzsche is not an individualist in the way that Max Stirner is an individualist in spite of the fact that people often correlate the two because Max Stirner sort of sees the subjective experience of the individual ego consciousness as like the only real thing and like rejects all social bonds and social like agreements or um, like all of these interdependencies as being fundamentally like unreal and purely fictional. And uh, I don't think Nietzsche does agree with that. I think there are really important ways in which his will to power doctrine actually leads Nietzsche to perceive the aggregations of individuals um, as real and relevant forces in the world. That being said, about mankind itself, there's a passage in, I think, Will to Power, where he says, mankind does not even exist. And what that means is like, sort of what we were talking about earlier, that mankind, quote unquote, is a data set. It's a, it's a fictional category that we've imposed upon the world in order for us to understand something. But it, you know, like, yeah, strictly speaking, as a quote unquote, objective fact, mankind does not even exist. The, the tricky thing for me and where I think people get confused, including maybe even Nietzsche himself, is the fact that it is not an objective fact in the world, quote unquote, is not a strike against it. If it is just the way that humans are, it's just an illusion that humans are hopelessly led astray to believe in, well, then that's our reality, right? So this fiction of mankind, it doesn't exist as an objective fact but it exists in our minds and it always will. We'll always have some conception of what we are as an organism. Like, you know, you could say, because I guess you could say the line drawn between different species of organisms is an arbitrary thing that you could draw it at any point conceivably, right? And we've drawn it at like, well, these two organisms can't interbreed and so they can't produce offspring together so they have now become a different species. But I, I mean, you could just not categorize things that way, right? That's that's your subjective determination that that's the point at which you draw the line. But if all life forms are ultimately related and come from the same common ancestors, 
And as you go back and back and back, we all descended from like a single-celled protozoan or something like that. The lines at which different things emerge or diverge from one another are totally subjective. So that's true, but at the same time, mankind does exist, Nietzsche. Like, it exists because we... What do you mean when you say it's human all too human? You know what it is. Like, you're just being obtuse when you say mankind doesn't even exist. Because you yourself know that that, even though it's a fiction, it's an indispensable fiction for us. But the the fact that we find a fiction indispensable, right? He includes things like the falsification of the world by means of numbers, without which man could not live. That That's what it means for it to be indispensable, right? So numbers are a fiction, in, strictly speaking, in terms of like the quote-unquote objective world. But numbers are real. They're as real as anything because they are indispensable for our understanding of reality. Without them, we wouldn't be able to comprehend it. So I think there are ways in which Nietzsche maybe falls into a pothole that he himself dug (laughs) that, you know, if you're going to, uh, bring it down to just the level of the phenomenal world, the world of immediate experience is what is actually real. Then we do live in an immediate experience that is necessarily and irreducibly an illusion from that same standpoint. And so as Nietzsche says at many times, something being an illusion is not in and of itself a strike against it. And yet you can get the impression from other places in Nietzsche that it is, right? That, well, if we really want to follow the truth, we have to leave it behind. And I think a lot of this makes sense if you you sort of understand that Nietzsche in some sense knows the level of truth that he's ingesting can be bad for you, so to speak. This is why a lot of people attribute Nietzsche's Nietzsche's, um, mental breakdown and his madness to his own philosophy, because he's basically, by his own philosophical understanding, the strength of a spirit is measured by how much truth it can tolerate, right? And so it seems like he's just like ingesting heroic doses of the truth uh, to almost like drive himself mad or something like that. But um you know and so nietzsche thinks that many of us us philosophical types we might be able to earn the right to these truths to understanding the actually illusory nature of human belief and human perception of the world but that this isn't for the general public and it can actually be harmful to you if you're not ready for it I guess what I'm saying is, and maybe this isn't even a problem with Nietzsche so much as his interpreters, they don't sufficiently take this through as far as it should be taken. And um, as far as like Nietzsche's opinions on a lot of things, like uh, like his aristocratic radicalism, I mean, I don't agree with that mainly because of that same issue that I was bringing up before, that he doesn't sufficiently understand or he doesn't sufficiently then give weight to these interdependent collectives of power and just dismisses it as the herd. And, you know, like, of course he would, because he's the contrarian individual who is the herd wants always to crush down. And Nietzsche is sort of standing for the defiant contrarian individual who is, I think he rightly points out the mutation in the species that therefore drives it forward.
and maybe we don't need more spokesmen for the herd, right? Because they're everywhere. But if you just want to ask like my opinion about like where Nietzsche therefore is wrong, like I think I therefore think it's good that he doesn't like give concessions. We don't need half hearted qualified statements. It's you need a philosopher to be hewn from a single stone and give these unqualified statements so that you, they can fully articulate the position and then you can test it and clash it against another archetypal philosopher. That's very useful. I think it's useful for philosophers to commit and um, to get to be to write their involuntary and unconscious autobiography that is, you know, decidedly and proudly from this perspective, from which they then attack and reevaluate all the rest of the other philosophers from that angle. And then we're able to sort of compare and contrast from different perspectives. So I like that Nietzsche fully commits to his perspective. I think it is valuable that he does, but he is ultimately incomplete as a result of that. He himself serves as a corrective by getting us to understand the function of like the great individual as being like the function of the mutation. But then we have to move beyond seeing that as the ends and the means, like the entire meaning of all society and culture, because that's just simply isn't the reality for the majority of human beings. Nietzsche would say, well, why are you looking at the reality for the majority? We should look at the reality for the exception. As Nietzsche himself points out when he's attacking Schopenhauer over his resignationism, the whether you say yes or no to life, right? This isn't a rational argument we, we can have. It's just strictly a matter of your evaluation. It's a matter of your own instinct and your temperament. And so, you know, the, the matter of whether you come down on deciding for the values of the majority or for the extreme minority, right? I guess that's not a rational position either. That's going to reflect who and what you are. But I, I don't think it's obvious that one or the other of them is correct. And that, in fact, Nietzsche, far from this being a thing about like class position, or anything of that sort, Nietzsche may simply have not been able to have the kind of emotional familial bonds that would make him understand that there is something very valuable in the relationships between people on the level of like the family or the community that isn't just strictly like the herd clustering together to survive that the love that people have for others in their lives goes well beyond that. And the, the idea that it should just all be about like individual accomplishment is something that I think you can't maintain. It's not something that would have even been held by like a lot of the great men that Nietzsche talks about, by the way. I mean, Julius Caesar had a family, he had children, right? Um, there are real social bonds that, and, uh, you know, bonds of like identity that exist between peoples that are important. And I think Nietzsche was correct in the human all too human phase of his political thought where he sort of sees the ultra rich and the people who have nothing as both being like sort of destabilizing to society and both should be distrusted. I think there's some sort of logic to that. Nietzsche, of course, you know, this is because he thinks like we need like a true aristocracy, right? But I think it's clear, like, you know, if you look at like the example of ancient Rome, like you had this class of smallholder plebeian farmers who were also the military, 
like that's what Rome was. That was the backbone of society. It wasn't like the proletarians. It wasn't like these Roman aristocrats. The aristocrats were certainly like part of that society, right? Um, an important part, but they're nothing without the plebeians. And in fact, the the early plebeian secessions and the what this the concessions that this extracted from the Roman aristocracy prove this. They knew that they needed them. They would not have been able to survive in this world um, of the Mediterranean with the Gauls and all the other Italian city-states without the plebeians, the, the middle class that was the, the bread and butter, the meat and potatoes of the Roman society. That's what Rome was. And so um, I kind of reject both the socialist, oh, we stand always for like the lowest poorest class of people or we stand always always for the aristocracy like i guess it's because i'm a product of the middle classes but i'm like i feel like that's the healthiest part of society <laughs> and like yeah are there herdish aspects of them sure there's herdish aspects of all levels of society by the way um and are there individualists among them yeah there are people who are very individual and peculiar in their values and their way of life um, all over society as well. I just think, I don't know, I think a lot of Nietzsche's understanding, maybe it actually made sense in analyzing some like ancient power structures where things were more simple. But even when we get to the case of ancient, oh, so that my point in saying that they certainly don't apply today in many respects. And I think when we look at like ancient Rome, we can already see how uh, it's not just like you had these good virtuous aristocrats and then like, you know, these, these people who with inflamed passions, the, of the mob, um, it's, it's way more complex than that. And there are times when Nietzsche seems to comprehend this himself. So again, it might not strictly be like just, you know, that Nietzsche was out and out wrong, I guess, just on his conclusions of, you know, the Sipo Matador, everything is for the sake of like a, a couple great individuals to me seems short-sighted and it seems like the confession of a person who never felt those strong bonds with the people around him. Um, and maybe was sort of, you know, maybe there's something about it that was Nietzsche's attempt at, um, I don't want to say coping, but with making reality and his fate, his destiny seem right with the world to him that, you know, the person with whom he does find a father figure, Richard Wagner, and find like a family that he can actually feel, you know, the kind of family that he would have wanted to have, be it not the, you know, the country preacher that his father was, and then his like overbearing mother and, and sister. But, you know, this man and woman, Rickard and Cosima Wagner, who are like this father and mother that are like, the ideal image of it. And then he, but it's like, for whatever reason, whether it was that some sort of personal issue with their split or just ideology, it's like at that Bayreuth festival, it's like Nietzsche is alone. He feels a vast distance between himself and other people. And while he occasionally has these, he has these like small scale friendships with individuals. He can form a bond with another individual as so long as they're, you know, just the two of them one-on-one -on -one, having these intense conversations, he'll form these like little bonds and he does have friendships throughout his life, but it's like, he can't integrate into the community 
of, at Bayreuth because he realizes it's like, oh, whenever you get a mass of people together, their ideology is fucking stupid. And, uh, you know, it's like the, 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 the shit rises to the top, right? The most common, um, uh, the most average ideas, the most, um, in many ways, resentful and bitter ideas are what rise to the top among any kind of like group attempting like mass action or basing, basing itself in a mass identity. And, uh, you know, he doesn't like the overall character and temperament. He just can't, he can't become part of a community. Um, he, and maybe there were good reasons for that. Maybe we should be glad historically that he couldn't and be glad again, that he stands for this perspective for all time. But, um, it's incomplete and maybe I'll stop there that. Cause I think that's maybe my fundamental disagreement with Nietzsche is that, uh, his, his radicalism while useful doesn't work. Okay. Thomas King asks, I am interested to hear about any obscure or non-mainstream philosophers that you feel are truly carrying on Nietzsche's work, not mimicking or parroting his concepts, but actually building upon them. And I say obscure because those tend to be the folks with the most meaningful things to say. As with Nietzsche, they may not, taken qu- may not be taken quite so seriously during their beginnings and hence deserve a little amplification. Huh. Well, okay. Somebody who comes to mind immediately um, would be somebody like Nick Land. Nick Land started out as like a Marxist or neo-Marxist. And then he became like basically like a far right, like extremist in many respects. But he builds on Nietzsche's work in many important ways. He, he really takes seriously the idea that uh, like he considers, uh, I think the essay is called Hellbaked, where he says that basically everything great about the human organism or anything alive was like tortured out of it. It came out of suffering. He says we do live in hell and that what evolution is is just this like abattoir of killing and devouring. And it's just like the amount, the sum total of suffering that it's created, the incredible amount of suffering that we can't even comprehend, billions of years of suffering in order to produce everything great about it. And that, uh, you know, everything, uh, there's no, there's no progress or improvement that is even conceivable outside of what he calls the fires of hell. Uh, so very bleak and the kind of thing that'll drive someone insane. It's, you know, it's said that during Nick land, he was teaching like a graduate course. Uh, I forget on what, but he, it was like a notorious incident where he drove a lot of his grad students to the point of like a manic breakdown. He was doing all this like meth and cocaine and getting his grad students to do a bunch of meth. And, uh, he would like make them repeatedly watch like apocalypse now and hearts of darkness and read heart of darkness. Um, just these books about like this journey into madness in, you know, this, like this whole grad program that was just like designed to like break the sanity of his like grad students. Um, I don't know really too many of the details, but, uh, he himself then had like a mental breakdown, I believe. And he wrote this book called Fanged Numina, which I've read a little bit of as well. So that's kind of an obscure modern philosophical figure who does build on the work of Nietzsche. Um, who else? Um, Eugene Thacker uh, addresses Nietzsche to some extent. Uh, he has a series of books called In the Dust of This Planet, which kind of had a moment as like alt pop philosophy um, about 10 years ago now. Um, 
and he's responding to Nietzsche as well as like the Kyoto school and, um, like analyzing some really unconventional and offbeat topics in philosophy that kind of concern like horror and alienate. It's like if Lovecraft, like it's like philosophy for people who like Lovecraft, who I think Lovecraft also was another person who like carried on the ideas of Nietzsche to some extent, but like from the perspective of a, you know, like aristocratic wasp from new England who like perceives the death of God coming, but his, his reaction, unlike Nietzsche's is like, abject terror in the face of it and that's like the entirety of of his work and some to some extent and so uh thacker really covers i mean in the dust of this planet is called the horror of philosophy right that's like the the subtitle of the volumes and it's like a three volume thing it's not top-notch work i'm going to be honest there's a lot of it that kind of falls into the trap of just like playing with words in the style of the french philosophers where you're like you didn't actually say much there. Um, you're just sort of like ruminating. Um, I don't know how obscure Emile Chioran is. Uh, he seems to get brought up in the comments section a lot. I know I've recommended him. Uh, he sort of is like the, I would say, a successor to Nietzsche as well. But again, he from a very negative standpoint. Everyone I've brought up has been sort of like a very continued Nietzsche in a very negative way. I remember in a past Q&A, somebody asked me about that Bronze Age pervert. And so I went and read some of his stuff and I found it really like it it didn't feel like it was actually building on anything Nietzsche said. In many ways, it was like a, just like a almost like a parody of Nietzsche, like a simplified sort of like, um, I, I don't know. I didn't find it to be that original or like it actually expanded on anything. And in many ways, kind of like just distorted it in line with, you know, a certain ethos or agenda that they're trying to put forward so i don't know i I guess maybe those are three recommendations if you want to go down some uh you know ernst kassirer i don't know to what extent he expanded on nietzsche but he was like a continental philosophy philosopher a little after the turn of the century um who talked about some of the same things like language and myth um that's a a good book by him it's really short too so I, i recommend it to a lot of people um, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to be honest. Like, I don't know too many, like, quote unquote philosophers, um, who are around today or who are like not mainstream. I don't really go like searching for this kind of thing. I just kind of find it as it comes to me. And, and most of the people I could bring up would be like my friends or people I've talked to. Like, you know, that Hans Jorg Moller is a pretty cool guy. He's a non-mainstream philosopher who in some sense responds to Nietzsche, but um, I don't know how obscure he technically is. Um, so I don't know. It's my best attempt. I don't, I don't really know too many like alt philosophers or whatever. Okay. Captain Ron asks, not much of a question, but I was curious if you've heard of Daniel Brennan. He's a contributor to the agonist. Uh, Captain Ron, I have not heard of Daniel Brennan. I don't know if I've heard of the agonist either. Captain Ron continues, I'd read an article of his taking a Nietzschean view of surfing, which is America's last almost non-commercialized sport. Surfer culture was also pretty underground in the States before the Beach Boys. You can read about it in Barbarian Days. Brennan might be a good guest. I guess a better question is, would you agree sport is inseparable from a philosophy and a noble perspective on life? Nietzsche was a mountaineer. What's it say about a civilization's mental health? That's twisted agony into a repulsive word loaded with negativity and pain and where sport is basically a consumer spectacle 
for the masses of man babies? <laughs> Can such a bleak, life-hating, dead civilization hope to reconstitute itself? I mean, uh, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Uh, bleak, life-hating, dying civilizations hit the they bottom out and then they are forced to reconstitute themselves we have to learn everything the hard way we don't ever get to um we don't ever get an easy way out no one ever <laughs> no one ever learns before they absolutely have to except by necessity necessity is the mother of invention as they say right um it's funny what you said at the end uh well so twisted agony into a repulsive word they've taken agon and made it uh, it completely inverted the meaning because Aegon is about the struggle, the competition, the public competition, which is, you know, strife and suffering, right? But it's part of this crucible of greatness. And, but when we have the word agony now, it just means pain. It just means we just focus, fixate on the suffering aspect and not what the suffering is creating, which is part of that Greek morality, that glimpse into the Greek morality that Nietzsche wants to revitalize. So I completely agree with you there. Um, I think, hmm, what you, but what I was going to say, what it reminds me of is, uh, you should check out Gaddafi's green book, Muammar al-Qaddafi. He wrote a, so Mao had his little red book and, uh, Gaddafi had a little green book, right? It's green because it's like, that's one of the colors of the Muslim world. And Gaddafi was trying to become the leader of the Muslim Arab world or become a, a global figure and sort of speak for and advocate for that entire world and give them a philosophy that he called uh, the third way or the third universal theory, which he intended to be an alternative to capitalism and communism. Uh, or, I mean, he would have considered capitalists of the modern industrial strife, stripe during his time to basically be a form of fascism, right? Because that's the, the merging of the corporation and the state into this all-powerful conglomerate entity um, that, you know, universalizes its system of hierarchical exploitation based on capitalist consuming to the entire world through this financialized system. Uh, you know, it's like the third worldists like Gaddafi, the third way kind of third worldist people see Western capitalism as basically fascism, right? And then you had communism on the other side, which also became this authoritarian ideology. And so his third way was like a basically trying to anchor the family as the main unit of society. Uh, anyway, just explaining the general background of the work, but there's a funny thing he, he talks about towards the end. I think it's like the last part of it is about sports and I remember he basically makes the point at the end that our goal is that in the end, the bleachers will be empty because everyone will be wanting to engage in the vibrant, you know, physique building and healthy and fun activities of sports themselves rather than sitting as watchers in the stands, right? That our goal as a society needs to be to make sports like the, you know, an part just of the lifestyle of the average person rather than something they just passively watch. And so he was, um, you know, it's, it's worth looking up. I think you can find the whole green book online. If you just that section, uh, Gaddafi, uh, I think is, uh, putting forward a similar viewpoint as you are here. 
And uh, so anyway, yeah, uh, David or Daniel Brennan, haven't heard of him, but surfing, America's last almost non-commercialized sport. That's interesting. I think it used to be commercialized. I think another thing might be skateboarding. I mean, I know there's a commercial element to it, but there's so many people who do it like non-commercially. You could say hiking too. Like a lot of, I'm, I'm a hiker and I have access. The cool thing about Austin is we have like hiking trails, like in the city where you can go and basically forget you're in the city. You can still kind of hear the highway depending on where you are. But, um, you know, hiking, I'm again, like I know there's like ways that people try to make money off of it and make it into a spectacle, but be kind of boring to like have a hiking spectacle, right? So that's like a nice way to like go and get physical activity. It's not really sport in the competitive sense though. Um, in the sense of like getting a bunch of people together, right. To act as a group or a team in a way that sort of replicates the experience of early hunters and how humans, I think are really pack animals in many ways that we, we operate on the level of the small group. And, um, so hiking doesn't really have that element to it. I know you can have like a hiking walking group, but hiking is more like you say, Nietzsche was a mountaineer, right? So that maybe that's why I enjoy that is that I sort of feel very similar to Nietzsche. I feel like I'm a similar personality type and it works for me to kind of just go hiking on my own and go at my own pace. And that, uh, you know, there is no goal. There's no competition. It's just sort of like physical exercise and enjoying nature. That's very good to me, but I, I do appreciate, uh, putting in like competitive team sports. And I think it it would be very helpful in our, um, but we do kind of do that right in school, I guess it's like, yeah, there's always this commercial element. There's always this, like, there's always like other things at play that don't feel like they're just to the goal of like giving the kid the best experience in sports. Right. Like, so I live in Texas and the politics, the local politics, the school politics surrounding Texas football are kind of insane, right? Like parents are like at war with the coaches all the time to get their kids to play as much as they can because the team's trying to win, but the parents also want their kids to get the experience of playing ball. And there are like clubs and youth leagues that people who are intent on getting their kids into the pros start them at when they're like fucking toddlers, basically. I mean, not really, but like pretty much. Um, So, you know, there's there's other things that take the focus away from just like promoting competitive team sports as something but i think that's like something for the very reason of something that Nietzsche denies like the herd ethics or whatever right so this is another way that could tie in with that my my criticism of Nietzsche like i think it is good for people especially when they're young to like be on a team and do something competitive and learn to work as a team like i was on a debate team when I was in high school, it's not exactly like a sport, but having to like work with different people who were different than me and thought different than me and had different approaches to like a work ethic and like having to succeed with them. Um, like, I don't know, it's not always easy and it, and it builds certain traits that'll be useful for people like later in life. But yeah, preferably with physical sports. I also did uh, martial arts as well. And that like, I'm so glad I did that, right? It gave me a level of confidence in myself and, um, like, in confidence in dealing with physical altercations. And as a result, I've never really had to deal with that in my life. I'm also a pretty big guy, though, so most people don't mess with me anyway. But, yeah, I think I think uh, you're, on, you're on to something here. Okay, Robert Sullivan, next question. What do you see as Nietzsche's perspective when he wrote that if Jesus had lived in middle age, Jesus would have recanted his teaching and otherworldly visions? 
Was this a temporary departure from his consistent antipathy to Christianity? Was this put into his writings by Elizabeth? Why would Nietzsche say that an older Jesus would reject the death-worshipping cult that Jesus himself was promoting? Such a conclusion from, of all thinkers, Nietzsche is astonishing. Love to hear your thoughts. I don't think it's a departure from his consistent antipathy to Christianity. I think that, like, okay, so the world, the the view of life of the Buddha uh, is actually, like, the, the view of life of Schopenhauer, which is in line with the view of life of the Buddha, which is that the world is samsara. The world is an endless cycle of suffering, of chasing our desires and causing suffering to ourselves and those around us in the pursuit of our desires. And that it's the self-perpetuating cycle that has no goal and doesn't go anywhere. And it's just like a consistent causing of pain in, in the name of getting pleasure. The Buddha perceives this and Nietzsche thinks there is something noble in the fact that the Buddha in some sense rejects the world, but does it by simply directly addressing himself to the problem of suffering. In many respects, it's comparable to the way he saw Epicureanism and Epicurus, right? The Epicureans, he, he says by the end, by the time of Christ's arrival, Christianity's ascension in Rome, like all the nobles in Rome are Epicureans. And Epicureanism is not a hedonistic philosophy of seeking pleasure. In many ways, it's very similar to the ideology of the Buddha that we live in this transitory world of suffering. Um, maybe there are gods, you know, maybe there aren't. Uh, the point is just to minimize suffering by minimizing your, by taking control of what you have control of over, which is sub, your ability to limit your su subjection of yourself to your own suffering through pursuit of like worldly desires or so on and so forth right and by being a virtuous person so that even if there are gods or moral judgment that exist you don't have to worry about that because you've lived a virtuous life in so many words that is the approach of epicurus and the buddha and nietzsche looks at these people as noble figures even though he has a completely he thinks their view of life is correct he just makes a different evaluation on it he says yes to it, whereas they say no to it. Schopenhauer says no to life. Nietzsche says yes to life. That's not a matter of which one of them is rationally correct. They both perceive the same thing. It's just one has an instinct to embrace life. The others have the instinct to reject life, right? Because perhaps, as in the case, you know, this is what he says about Jesus. Perhaps they're overly sensitive. They're too sensitive to the suffering of the world to actually affirm it in light of that suffering. The only difference with Jesus is that he comes out of this extremely moralized tradition of the Jewish Old Testament and God as this harsh moral judge on mankind and this world which is morally dichotomous. And so this conception of sin gets layered on top of suffering. But in many respects, like Christ is in the same he's in the same category as the Buddha and Epicurus. And this is why people like Jordan Peterson will mistake Nietzsche's like erstwhile praise for Christ as like saying he endorsed Jesus, but was against Christians. It's not that he endorses 
Christ's assessment of the material world and his desire to live imminently in the kingdom of heaven, right? Nietzsche doesn't agree with that. But, you know, the perception of the Christian that this is the world where the just man is tortured to death may not be wrong, right? Strictly speaking, from the, the standpoint of objective truth. So this isn't... The ways in which he praises Jesus are not a departure from his antipathy to Christianity. For one, because he thinks that Christians, people who took on his ideology, did not measure up to him. They didn't um, actually understand the message of the Gospels. They were the strong but bungled men, the botched, right? The people, the hard Germanic people with an instinct for cruelty, but which were un, were stopped from venting that instinct. And that's where you get what Christianity turned into. And that's why there was only one Christian and he died on the cross. It's not that he is saying that, you know, so it, it's not that he is departing from his criticism of Christianity. He's as critical of Christianity as ever. And it's not because Christ is so much better than the Christians. He's all, he's the source of this very world denial. It's simply that he thinks Jesus, like the Buddha and Epicurus, uh, he was noble enough that maybe he could have overcome this moral, this other world, this, these metaphysical ideations and abstractions, which are the basis for this like moral uh, dichotomy or dividing of the world that comes in Christianity that perhaps does not exist in the same extent in Buddhism, which admits the transitoriness of the world, which looks at the world honestly and Epicurus, right? His whole task is like, how do we, okay, this is the situation. This is what life is like. These are the tragic limitations of life. How do we live within that in a way that we can be happy, right? Um, maybe the Buddha wouldn't say to be happy, but to be free of suffering, right? Maybe Christ would have reached that point as these other sort of figures that he's in the same category of, like these saints of the great... Uh, traditions of human religion. And why would he have, have, have lived to that? I mean, because in a way, it's not that Nietzsche is always like pro-young and anti-old. That would be an, a vulgar oversimplification of Nietzsche's viewpoints. What Nietzsche, he acknowledges that in youth, we have a sort of sentimentality and uh, we're more excitable and more extreme in our emotional states or in our passions and desires when we're young. And so for Christ's instinct to, uh, you know, his oversensitivity to suffering, his being unable to bear any, res giving any resistance um, against the world, that perhaps this was just like an excess of youthful, his youthful sensitivity and sentimentality. So, I don't know. That's just my, that's my best stab at it, at this question. Jonathan Zybala asks, what do you think Nietzsche would have to say about any, all, none of the following? One, symbiosis. So instead of like the Sipo Matador that like takes hold of another organism and just uses it and exploits it and dominates it and extracts energy from it in order to achieve its ends, what about symbiosis where two organisms exist in a sort of where they both get a benefit out of the situation, right? 
Um, I don't know what Nietzsche would have to say about it. I mean, I think he would, he would say like, they're both using each other. They're both exploiting one another. And it's just a happy accident that they're both able to do that in a way that doesn't like destroy the other one such that they can both perpetually derive something from the other. Um, and again, that would be, if he would hold to that strict of a view of his view of the world, again, it would be, I think, somewhat incomplete at least to some extent, right? That there, when you enter into some sort of mutual agreement or mutual understanding that produces an outcome that is greater than what either of you individually could have produced on your own, I think we can't just see that as both sides exploiting one another to the best of their ability. I, I don't know. I think there might be something else there that I don't fully understand that also exists in nature, which you could really say that this is as fundamental as the sexual impulse that um, when two organisms are attracted to one another, they both, yes, they both want something from one another, but you know, it's like when a man and a woman have offspring and raise the child together, I think there is something there that does go beyond that. I think we can say goes beyond just all sides mutually exploiting one another. Um, and I don't think that that's, that requires us to posit some sort of metaphysical significance to love, right? That the two sexual partners and, or just two partners in raising a child, um, are engaged in a form of symbiosis so that there is something in nature that isn't just essentially destruction and domination and exploitation. But I, I, I don't know. I could be wrong about that. Uh, heuristics. I mean, I, I guess like you just mean when you have, you know, some sort of some sort of way of thinking about a, a problem or a way of approaching something that's just like your standard, like, you know, where it's not necessarily that you think you have like rationally derived the correct answer in every circumstance. You just are like, I just operate based on this um, this like blueprint unless I have some reason to operate differently. Um, I think from a pragmatic standpoint, sure. I don't, I don't, I can't see what Nietzsche would think would be wrong with that. Or like, I don't know what he would have to say about it though. I have to be honest. I don't, I'm kind of struggling with this one. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, you have to use heuristics to navigate the world. We all do. It's like, I guess you could say heuristics are part of perspective and there are maybe some very interesting things we could say about perspective and about heuristics from understanding that relationship that the heuristics you use are going to be based on your perspective, which is based on who and what you are and so on and so forth. Uh, serendipity. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think Nietzsche would draw any conclusions from a serendipitous, um, outcome that anything beyond his love of fate, right? Um, I mean, the love of fate is not just purely like loving the tragic nature of reality in your life. Like it can also be, you know, the Goethe's trusting fatalism is also like occasionally things come together and happen in a, a wonderful way. And um, I think Nietzsche would just say, well, that was just necessarily what always had to happen because all events were always drawing the conclusion of that happening. So I don't know. I don't think he would like 
draw any metaphysical conclusions from serendipity necessarily. Catastrophism. Uh, I think Nietzsche would say people who are constantly catastrophizing probably haven't had enough catastrophe in their life would be my, uh, my inclination, right? That the prescription for, uh, people who are suffering is more suffering (laughs) because, uh, yeah, I mean, that's how you recognize what's really a catastrophe and what isn't. So, uh, and it is that the people who are, will make the biggest deal out of the smallest thing have no problems in their life. Usually. Corey Diekman asks, do you consider some of Nietzsche's ideas dangerous or misguided? Dividing humanity into higher or lower types, re-legitimizing slavery, rejecting egalitarianism and democratic values, and misogyny are all assertions that I personally find abhorrent and in the wrong hands can and have been used to disastrous ends. Sometimes I wonder if Nietzsche would have experienced the horrors of war, gotten married, and had a family, or lived to a ripe old age that he might have softened on many of his extreme ideas. It's funny because now like leading up to this question from like all the things we've talked about, right? It's like Nietzsche says that about Jesus. Like maybe he would have repudiated his earlier ideas if he had lived longer. We could say the same thing about Nietzsche. And I think you're correct. Like I, I pretty much brought up that other idea that he was somebody who had like, uh, like couldn't really be feel part of a community ever. And so if that had happened, if he had gotten married and had a family, would that have changed? And, uh, you know, with people who catastrophize needing more catastrophe in their life, you know, maybe Nietzsche, who was so sick of uh, peace, could have used, uh, you know, some more experience in war. Now, he was, okay, I will say, being a medical orderly during a conflict and and catching multiple, like, diseases on the front, he probably did see some brutal and disturbing things, like stitching up uh people with war wounds that can't be fun um so he he did experience it to some extent he didn't experience like world war one world war one was the thing that changed everything so you know it's like maybe if he lived but see if he had lived to see world war one he would have been an old man and he probably wouldn't have really he wouldn't have truly comprehended it the way the people who were going through the war would have comprehended it so i don't know that i guess is a little bit iffy but uh, let me, I want to read you something actually about, uh, that Nietzsche said that I think is, is useful to think about. And this is from a letter to, uh, Heinrich Koselitz, Peter Gast. Um, yeah, Peter Gast is like an alias for Heinrich, Heinrich Koselitz. So this is in 1888 and it's February 1st. And, uh, I'll, I'll just read this whole two paragraphs here. Nietzsche says, quote, how close you have been to me all this time. What a tremendous deal I have thought out, both trash and wisdom, with you always as the principal figure in my mind. There has been a fine opportunity, the last drawing and the Nice lottery. For at least half an hour, I allowed myself the small and foolish luxury of taking it for granted that I should win the first prize. With half a million, it would be possible to reinstate a number of reasonable things on earth. At least you and I would regard the irrational character of our existence with more irony, with more detachment, for in order to do the things you and I do, and to do them quite well and divinely, one thing is fundamentally necessary. Irony. Well, then, for this is the way the world reasons. Half a million is the first premise of irony. To lack not only health, but also money, recognition, love, and protection, and not to become a tragic grumbler, This constitutes the paradoxical character of our present condition, its problem. 
As for myself, I have gotten to a state of chronic vulnerability, against which, when my condition is slightly improved, I take a sort of revenge which is not of the nicest description. That is to say, I adopt an attitude of excessive hardness. For a proof of this, look at my last work. Still, I put up with all this with the sagacity of an old psychologist and without the smallest moral indignation. Oh, how instructive it is to live in such an extreme state as mine. Only now do I understand history. Never has my vision been more profound than during the last few months. End quote. So, <laughs> Nietzsche has a reaction to his own state of vulnerability. What does he mean by that? He means his medical condition, which is increasingly, you know, laying him out for days at a time where he can't move out of extreme agony, where he's vomiting, where he's nauseous, where he's dizzy, where he's seeing these like visual hallucinations, and he has these migraines that are just like an ice pick into his right eye and um, completely debilitating and it's getting worse and worse and worse and he says when he gets better when he feels better he takes sort of revenge against the vulnerability that he feels by excessive harshness and he says his new work is proof of that well the new work he's talking about is the antichrist where he's you know he starts out by saying what is good the feeling of power and what is bad is weakness and we should even you know, the weak and ill-constituted shall perish, and we should even help them to do so. That sort of harshness, he says in this letter, comes as the, his sort of revenge against his own vulnerability. And so, in a way, the la one of the things you suggest, well, what if he experienced the horrors of war? Nietzsche did experience horror, and he did experience a great deal of suffering through his condition, and it's something we should never forget. And his own philosophy as a response to this, and his approach is so unique of saying i am not going to i want to in spite of the the immense suffering that characterizes my life i want to say that life is good and i don't want to do it by making up some illusory definition of what life is or where life comes from and so then all these other things you mentioned i mean i think i mostly gave my response throughout this episode already i obviously don't agree with any of these things um, I guess your real question is, are they dangerous or misguided? I mean, yeah, his ideas are dangerous. Absolutely. A lot, all good ideas are dangerous, right? And uh, are, they, are they misguided? Well, he admits here they don't always come out of a strictly rational search for the truth. They're his own, it's his own mask that he's wearing, his own falsification of reality, his own way, his own artistic illusion for the sake of living for himself, right? Of this excessive harshness, which basically means, you know, it's like, is Nietzsche re-legitimizing slavery? In some ways he is. In more important ways, though, far more, far, 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 far more important ways. He's pointing out that your egalitarianism doesn't exist. That slavery, oh, oh, we've abolished slavery. Have we, though? Look up sometime the conditions of the children who are Mining the minerals that go into your smartphone by hand. I mean, the, the, the sum total of suffering and exploitation that we impose on the world and then veil with this like lie of like, well, it's the free market and we had a completely voluntarist contract that that person agreed to work for me. It's like we have all these laws and labor laws and regulations in the U.S. where we say child labor is wrong. Paying people 10 cents an hour is wrong. Withholding 
or uh, rather failing to provide proper safety or a safe environment for people to work in is wrong, right? But then we outsource to con- like our economy depends on labor from countries that have absolutely none of those protections, and where people are in a situation where you know it's between starve and work for ten cents an hour in unsafe conditions as a child laborer for your family, right? And so it's like, is that quote unquote slavery? In some sense, I don't really care about the word, right? I, we could argue all day long about whether that constitutes slavery or, or whatever. It's just very obvious to me that the, the libertarian fantasy that these are all voluntary exchanges in the free market is complete bullshit view of reality. That if somebody controls, for example, a supp- like if money is what buys you food, you don't have money, you are starving, somebody has a means of dispensing money to you, and you have to do this for me, Right? What is that other than a coercive, exploitative relationship? We're going to lock down the resources and have control of them so that we can make you do what we want in order to dispense the resources to you, right? And, you know, look, the market, the alternative to the market is warfare, right? I'm not just saying like, well, the alternative is like some hippie egalitarianism that we could have if we wanted to. Because no, like <laughs> what happens is people eventually get so fed up with this that they just like attack you and take the stuff, which is the thing that the conservative libertarian free market advocates are always worried about. You know, that's why we need laws, according to the founding fathers, to stop the poor from mur- murdering the rich. But because that's what eventually happens when, when those people no longer want to play by the rules of those material relationships, which, by the way, is the natural thing to happen. Like, that's not some aberrant outcome. Eventually, you know, like, you can talk about the rule of law and rights and, and things all day long, but eventually, you know, if you have hungry people or people who feel like they have the ability to take something from you, they will do it. Um, and so, I don't know. I would just look at what Nietzsche is saying. The more, far more important thing to me is um, the ways in which Nietzsche's view of the world as uh, driven by the these power relationships is a far more informative way of viewing the world than any like moralistic interpretation and then if you have some sort of goal for humanity i think you have to first like reckon with that um like so i don't think you know it's like we can get upset about a 19th century philosopher quote-unquote re-legitimizing slavery or we can look at the ways in which slavery today is legitimized and is considered legitimate. And uh, there's a wonderful image. It's like of a, you know, like you can tell by the way they present this person that she's supposed to be like a sort of your stereotypical left-wing, like white woman based on her haircut. But there's like an image where she's like, you know, she's sitting on a throne of the people of the third world. And like there's, you know, an Asian woman on her knees, like doing the woman's nails. And there's like a kid mining you know, on his hands and knees. And there's like the guy carrying the sack of coffee from like, you know, Latin America coming up to serve her a cup of coffee. And, you know, um, just like how, and then basically the the person sitting on the throne, this person who looks like your standard upper middle class, um, you know, left-wing person who has great sympathy for these people is still sitting on a throne of human flesh and she's shedding a single tear, right? And that's our society, is a bunch of people who who they feel guilt 
and they feel terrible about the ways that they perceive that they benefit from a system of exploitation. They don't stop benefiting from it. They just shed a tear over it. And then all of our cultural you know, disruptions in society are over you know, these disagreements over like cultural messaging and signaling that really you know, just bear no relationship to the material realities which people live under. And so I, what I find valuable about Nietzsche is like just turning our eye to the brute reality, to the, the harshness that he's talking about bringing out in the Antichrist that was his revenge against his own vulnerability actually leaves us with something very useful to, to approach reality with no illusions so that we can see through, you know, it's like, well, Nietzsche rejects egalitarianism and democratic values. We reject egalitarianism and democratic values. Do you think we live in a democracy? So, um, you know, that's to me is the important thing. See, see, see things as they truly are and not from these moral, like the standpoint of these moral illusions. And then if you actually want to solve these problems, you can start there. But we're not going to start by imagining that, oh, we abolished slavery in 1865. I mean, I know people, it's a commonly cited fact, there's more slavery around today than there has ever been in the world. And that's probably just as a function of population growth and just the amount of people that are around today. But we scarcely, you know, perceive how we just define the ways that we enslave people away. Another example, right? Like Jordan Peterson likes to get apoplectic with rage about the crimes of the Soviets. Like they killed millions of people, millions of Ukrainians starved to death during the Holodomor, for example. And those are the crimes of the Soviet empire that are not sufficiently discussed, whereas everyone knows about what the Nazis did. And that's why we have to, you know, the left and the right could go to extremes. So that's why we have to live in a liberal democracy, which is the rational way to live. He doesn't talk about the ways in which laissez-faire capitalism starved millions of people. Read about the, the famine in Ireland in the 1800s. Read about the famine in India in the uh, 1860s, I believe it was. It might have been 1880s. There were multiple famines, right? Oh, well, that wasn't, that doesn't count as a, a strike against liberal democracy because that was the British East India Company. Like, that doesn't count as capitalism starving people. It's like, um, yeah, the private corporation that was allowed to take over an entire country and run it as a laissez faire experiment where they destroyed the industry of the people that existed there through their monopolistic practices and made them dependent upon a system of welfare where they basically dispensed as little aid as possible and forced them to work, um, you know, do backbreaking labor to receive as little food as possible. Um, and millions of Indians starved to death under this experiment in like completely unrestrained market forces as the only way of determining how to act in society. I've never seen Jordan Peterson cry over that one, but you know, so anyway, like this perception that there is like any, that we've ever done anything differently. I really don't see it. I, human beings, uh, have always told ourselves the lie that our new system of government, our new culture, our new set of moral ideas is what's going to be better and superior to everything else human beings have ever done. And we never want to accept that we're just animals behaving the way that we always behave. And uh, this has all happened before and it's going to happen again. 
as they love to say in uh, Battlestar Galactica. Okay, Eric Severitsen asks, does AI have a will to power? And uh, I somewhat an- I, <laughs> I answered a variation of this question on my first episode of The Wandering Above a Sea of Fog, where I was just like, just a freeform episode, where I was just sort of uh, talking about my life and my thoughts recently, not necessarily having to do with Nietzsche, where I sort of posed the question of whether AI has a will to truth. So now I'll answer the actual question, does AI have a will to power? Well, I'll answer it the way a couple ways. First, I have my enduring skepticism that something that's not embodied, something that doesn't have pain and pleasure, suffering and joy, emotions, drives, physiology, something without a physiology, basically, I'm very skeptical that it could even have an, a state of artificial general intelligence of like something we might call sentience or a subjective experience. Because I don't think the subjective experience comes from reaching a certain level of intelligence. And I've ne- I don't ever hear this expressed in popular culture, right? Like they, we all assume that a certain level of intelligence and then you hit consciousness, self-awareness, right? The, the understanding of your, your sentience and your understanding of yourself as a sentient being. But I don't think it comes from just accumulating intelligence. I think first and foremost, it starts on the foundation of being a living embodied physiological being. You have drives, you have valuations, you have things that you want and are pursuing. And that is part and parcel with life. And that is what is driven by will to power. And so does AI have that? I don't know. I don't know if it's possible for AI to have that, but it certainly will not have it as a consequence or a function of creating more and more intelligent lines of code, right? So I don't think sentience ever comes from that. You just get more and more sophisticated chat GPTs that can ever more convincingly model the appearance of what an intelligent being using language might, uh, might uh, appear as. But it doesn't ever... The moment when AI becomes sentient is the moment when it does attain a will to power, because that's when it's truly alive. And that I think would be, it would have to be embodied and have like pain and pleasure and desires and motivations. And is there an artificial way to create that? I don't know. Maybe that's a question for Lex Friedman because I really don't know. So, um, sorry if that's a disappointing answer. I guess I'm just giving you the way I think about the issue. I don't have an answer to the question, but that's how I would think about the issue and how I would approach it. That I think we think about it all wrong. It's not, that it, we just need to accumulate more intelligence or heighten the quantity of, of intellect that the machine has. It's that it's lacking a certain quality, I think, that li- all living beings have. And that is not an aspect uh, just of us being smart, but is an aspect of the physiology, such that it would be possessed even by, you know, to some extent, any organism that has some sort of perception of its environment and uh, physiological needs or demands. Uh, Dennis McCarthy asks, I find nothing on Nietzsche and Lucretius. Do you know what his view was of Lucretius? Dennis actually asked me this also in a private message, and I I did a little digging, and I couldn't really find anything um, of Nietzsche talking about Lucretius. I need to dig more into, like, his time at Basel and some of the the apocrypha of Nietzsche uh, notes and lectures and things like that, because I'm sure he must have talked about him, at least in passing, but I couldn't off, you know, with a, what was an admittedly cursory look 
or off the top of my head, I was unable to find anything. Um, I will say this. I have read Lucretius on the nature of things. Um, it's a sort of like a poem and, uh, I, I, I very much enjoy the verses, the language that Lucretius uses. I actually read from that poem on a recording from 2014 in a band called Venus Victrix. That was another project of mine that was just me. I played every instrument on that recording. I had some guest musicians come in, play solos, and a drummer I work with and Destroyer and Slumbering Sun, he has these little like pedals or like Moog, like noisemakers. They basically create like synthetic noise and stuff. And he came and brought that, but I played the drums. I played the guitar, I played the bass. I composed everything. And then I got a singer to come in and sing the parts. Um, and it was all stuff about like, we had a lot of songs about pagan mythology and, uh, particularly like ancient Greece and Rome and the, the recording, I mean, you want to hear, so a lot of bands, it's funny because at that time, like between like 2011 and 2014, 2015, there were a lot of bands in the doom stoner metal scene who did this wanting to sound lo-fi. And so they would record on like sixties era equipment, like record to tape and just record with like limited microphones on like four or like eight tracks and, uh, you know, just one take everything. And it would sound like a sixties recording. Right. The thing is that, that that's not actually lo-fi. I mean, it is, you get a lower fidelity of the recording, but it's not like, that's not like indie, right? It's not, uh, you're not actually taking the cheapest, most readily available technology and methods of recording that you have in order to just produce a recording at your budget. You're like actually spending a lot of money to get 60s era equipment in order to attain a certain vintage sound. And so it's funny because that Venus Victrix volume one recording, we were like actually (laughs) lo-fi. We we recorded digitally. Um, We did everything the cheapest we could and because it was mostly me and like, I didn't have any money at that time to go to recording, uh, to spend on recording. And so I mostly just had my friends, like I got most of it done for free. Even the artwork, which was like stitched by a friend of mine was done for free. Um, everything about it really was just like the cheapest you could possibly do it. And so it's like a truly lo-fi recording. The thing that I don't like about it is to this day, it's like, the the drums are like the mixing is bad and the guitars the tone isn't quite what i want them to be nevertheless there are people who will still come up to me to this day and be like that venus victrix though that was my favorite thing you've ever done it was like a one-off we did that album we did a couple acoustic versions of those and we played a total of two shows and that was it uh i got like pre- people in europe writing to me i sent so many of those cds to europe i made them all myself um got a decent slew of like European reviews, all, almost all of them in foreign languages. So that was really fun, but uh, it never really went anywhere. Right. But my whole point in bringing this up is I, I had a song called the, the oath of Lucretia um, about uh, Lucretia from founding of the Roman empire. And at the end of that song, I read a section of uh, Lucretius um, about like war and dying on the battlefield, basically that I thought sounded really cool. So uh, I know this doesn't answer your question at all. It just made me nostalgic for an earlier period of my life, which was very exciting and where I made something that was rather cool. I also found there was a blog called Heavy Metal Classicist that um, 
not super recently, but I think like maybe 2018, 2019, like years after I made this, um, somebody found this recording and then talked about it as like, I guess he just blogs about heavy metal that involves like classicism, right? Greece and Rome and classical antiquity and, and was using Venus Victrix as an example of that. So that was pretty cool to see. Um, and I didn't discover it until like years after the article was written. I think I like wrote a thank you in the comments, but you know, um, I don't know what this, this guy's doing now. I don't think he's updated it with new articles in a long time. Okay. So those are all the questions from all the different patrons, but a couple people asked a second question. So I skipped them over, uh, because they posted another question, in a separate comment, but I'll go back because material mind and Jonathan Zabala both asked another one. So I might as well answer them here. Material mind would also be interested to hear your take on Galen Strawson's summary of Nietzsche's metaphysics. If you aren't familiar, I think he breaks it down into around 10 propositions, which are quite accessible. Uh, well, let's see. Okay, this is from an abstract on Oxford Academic. Uh, Nietzsche's Metaphysics by Galen Strassen. Okay, have, this chapter contains 10 claims. Uh, one, there is no persisting and unitary self. Two, no fundamental ontological distinction between objects and their properties. Three, between the categorical properties of things and the dispositional or power properties of things. Four, between objects or substances and the processes and events. Five, reality isn't truly divisible into causes and effects. Six, objects are not governed by laws of nature ontologically distinct from them. Seven, there is no free will. Eight, determinism is true. Nine, reality is one. Ten, reality is suffused with if it does not consist of mentality in some form. This chapter argues that Nietzsche's mature position certainly includes one through seven, also eight properly understood, and probably nine and ten. The only one I really disagree with is nine. Reality is one. <clears throat> I think that's uh, I think that's a bit of an overreach, and I think it's too. I think it fails to understand how Nietzsche is in the camp of Democritus and seeing like irreducible multiplicity and difference in the world. Um, now, is the world all will to power and nothing besides? Yes, I don't think understanding what that means is necessarily served by the reduction into reality is one because i think you could say that it's one the process of reality or the the nature the the dynamics of reality are i mean i don't know i, I i'm even like a little com uncomfortable with that i think also nietzsche contradicts himself depending on whether you're looking at published notes or published sources versus unpublished notes and again throughout his career but sometimes even within the same book right <clears throat> and so let's see we'll get on the list no persisting and unitary self strassen's correct yeah nietzsche would hold that too no fundamental ontological distinction between objects and their properties yeah the doer and the deed are the same i would i would agree three between the categorical properties of things and the dispositional or power properties of things. Yeah, every quantity of power draws its ultimate conclusion at every moment. Four, between objects or substances and processes and events. Yeah, Nietzsche would question whether there actually are ob objects or substances or that what we refer to as an object is actually a process or an event. Five, reality isn't truly divisible into causes and effects. Nietzsche does hold that. It's a 
a fiction we bring to bear upon the world. That's something I actually take issue with, right? Six, objects are not governed by laws of nature, but are on, uh, which are ontologically distinct from them. Okay, so the laws of nature are contained within the, the nature of the objects themselves. I agreed. Seven, there is no free will. Yes. Eight, determinism is true. I wouldn't use the word determinism because I think it has a mechanistic flavor to it that Nietzsche rejects that suggests that cause and effect uh, actually is like, like the, the reality actually is divisible into causes and effects, right? If we accept determinism, that's why I use the term fatalism. Not that there's like some essential difference in the word. It's just finding a word to distinguish Nietzsche from all the determinists. Nine, reality is one. That's the problem I have with that. It denies the irreducible multiplicity of Nietzsche's philosophy. Ten, reality is suffused with, even if it doesn't consist of mentality, which, yeah, of course, Nietzsche believes that. Um, ten almost seems a little bit too ordinary to me. Like, I don't know who could disagree that there is mentality in some form. Like, what are we talking about? How are we talking about anything if there's no mentality in some form? It's just like, I guess maybe he includes this as a way of warding off the people who would say that Nietzsche says there's no men or like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, because no, I don't think anyone says that Nietzsche thinks there's no consciousness or no rationality or no mentality at all. It's just that we don't understand what these things are and they're, we don't understand their indelible relationship to the physiological. So, um, yeah, mostly correct. I mean, I guess he does say the last the last couple get a little dicey, right? Eight properly understood, and then probably nine and ten. For the first seven, I think, are one hundred percent right that those describe Nietzsche's metaphysics. So, thanks for that question. Uh, material mind. Finally, Jonathan Zabala has a second question: What might have been Nietzsche's perspective of the late twentieth and early twenty first centuries popular view? of humanity's domination and destruction of nature, i.e. anthropogenic climate change and the drive to overcome and direct the same. I have no idea. I think at this point in history, Nietzsche might find himself, I think he would be more in the camp of like the Bjorn Lomberg or like, um, I don't know, maybe the people who are like, they perceive that there's like anthropogenic climate change, but they don't have like a apocalyptic view of it because <clears throat> I think Nietzsche wouldn't have too much faith in the mathematical models of like generated by scientific consensus that are around today and would think that there are like probably more possibilities than we're aware of. And that, uh, you know, it's possible that in 20 or 50 or a hundred years, like climate change is just like something we got over right just like uh you know peak oil we used to always be worried about peak oil doesn't seem like we're going to hit peak oil anytime soon it seems like that was mostly incorrect one of the reasons being that the more the ice caps melt like there's we get access to more oil and we like learn new technologies for getting shale and things like that from like hydraulic fracking so we've never hit peak oil but there was a time like when I was younger, people were talking about that all the time. Like we're going to run out of oil. Not we're going to run out of oil, but the process of extracting it will become more expensive than the, uh, it'll become so expensive and drive the cost up to such a degree that it becomes a non-viable um, to extract it, right? Like we're unable to use it to the degree that we've been using it for transport in the economy because it makes everything prohibitively expensive, something to that effect. 
that didn't pan out. Or, you know, like we might look at the, uh, the solution that was reached by Fritz Haber and then people who have built upon his work after that to make industrial agriculture possible and feed billions of people and like balloon the population to basically make um, mass starvation a thing of the past, not throughout the entire world, as we've discussed earlier in the episode, but in many places of the world, right? Um, and so, I mean, there was a time before penicillin when bacterial infections could, you know, ravage the human race. So I know none of these things are like on the level of climate change uh, in the eyes of a lot of people, but I guess I'm just pointing out, like I kind of hold the Star Trek view myself that like we can overcome like any challenge or problem that we can create. um, I have a sort of faith that we can have the ingenuity to overcome it and that also whenever we're so sure about our possibilities and predictions of the future, um, it uh, like (laughs) scientists have been very certain about future outcomes for a long time. And if you look at their predictions centuries ago, they were just as certain and many cases wrong because oftentimes we don't even know how wrong we are because of Donald Rumsfeld's famous unknown unknowns, right? You have your known, obviously there are the things that you know, and then there are the things that you don't know, your unknowns. But then there are the unknowns that you know about, and then there are unknowns you don't even know about. There are ways in which our perception of reality could be wrong in a sense that wouldn't even possibly occur to us because it's so beyond our perception. And we just never know what the future holds. I'm very skeptical when people, um, you know, say we're absolutely certain that all of these things are going to play out due to climate change. Well, I mean, the climate is one of the most complex systems in the planet. And that doesn't, so, I mean, like by that same token, fucking around with it is something that we should have done with way more caution. But it's like, we didn't know when you're creating the internal combustion engine that it was going to be one of the most effective systems for heating up the, the atmosphere. But, you know, like, and so similarly, it's like, who knows what, you know, other technological, what new technological or scientific understanding will come. It may completely transform like the entire landscape of like the problems facing us. But it is, I mean, maybe the interesting thing, like this, the humanity's domination and destruction of nature. I mean, it's like, it's pretty much, there's nowhere on earth that is like not a controlled environment or could, if it isn't actively controlled by human beings, it could be if we wanted to, right? We just haven't gotten to it yet because there's so much other stuff to do, right? It's like, it's not like uh, we haven't cut down the whole rainforest because we care about the rainforest. We just haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> so, and then like, what will the, the effects of that be? Um, you know, and uh, I think, again, I'm confident that there are, the possibilities are more open than the current scope of the debate uh, suggests and that there may be developments in the future, maybe even the near future that completely change everything that those possibilities do include though, that we're just like fools and we wipe ourselves out. But I don't know. I mean, uh, it's difficult to say what Nietzsche would think. I think maybe the interesting thing with Nietzsche would be because it's like the domination of this world of the animal world, you know, which is totally, unconscious impulsive instinctive just the ecosystem just this eternal recurrence of things eating each other and having offspring 
And then you have us, humanity, the thinking being, and now we're at the position of power where we, we could take control over the whole thing and begin to reshape it. And in accordance with all these like abstract ideas that we have, I mean, Nietzsche would probably think that we're playing with fire. We really are. Um, because I don't know the, the ways in which you, again, like you take a system as complex as the climate and you just fuck, fuck around with it. We may find out, but on the other hand, uh, every time I've, you know, there's been, there's always been apocalyptic predictions and it's hasn't come to pass. So I don't know. I, I think I'm a little tired cause I feel like I'm kind of talking in circles at the end. And besides Jonathan already got another question answered. So I'm just going to call it there. I'm, Feel like I could have been more insightful, but I don't know. I'm kind of at a loss. I don't know what Nietzsche would say. Um, <clears throat> so thank you patrons for your questions. I hope you appreciated my answers. Um, I might even just keep this episode only on Patreon and not even release it. I'm like, if I do release it to the general public, it'll probably be a ways down the line. I need to finish like, uh, that other Q and a that I started that I still haven't finished. I might, you know what? I might just leave those questions and behind and just move on and just keep pressing forward because you know it's like i didn't answer half the questions in the last crop but i got a lot of them and uh you know i i'm a i'm a busy man and going back and finding them again i guess i should just do it but it's like i I'm, i almost feel like okay it's been months i might as well just move on and ask for more questions and if somebody's around who i didn't answer their question the last time they can ask it again right maybe that's just what i'll do just put up for like an for the next general Q and A that's open to the public. I'll just like kind of move on. I was gonna do a part two to the last one, but just move on. And if it, I didn't get to someone's question, they can just ask it again. Maybe that's what I'll do. But this is just for y'all, and it'll just be on Patreon. Um, at the very least, y'all were the only ones who got to ask questions. So if you like this, I'm gonna try and do this more regularly. Uh, we have way more patrons now. There's more than seventy patrons. So welcome to all of our new patrons. Don't be afraid to ask a question, whatever it is, even if it's not some super deep philosophical or psychological or historical question, if it's just about me or just something uh, simple, I mean, feel free to ask. And, you know, I might not know, like Nietzsche and Lucretius. I'm going to look into that more, Dennis. I, I, I will. And if I find anything, you will be the first to know. Okay, thank you, everyone. Uh, have a wonderful day. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.